All right. On the podcast today, we are lucky enough to have, well, the plank owner, owner of C. Tom's and um, one of the newer additions of C. Tom's as well, who's done some great stuff with the rope and their uh, tactical rope development. We have Chris Kopp and Mike Gully. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks very much. Thank appreciate, you. appreciate you inviting us. Um, real quick before we start, just uh, who are you? Just so that our listeners know, I mean, there are a lot of rescue listeners. There will be some tactical rope military style guys listening to this, but uh, just so they know what your guys' background is. Sure, I, I guess I'll start. So um, my background is military. I joined the, the Army in, in 94, um, uh, and I met Mike a couple of years after that. We, we served in the military and the Army together. And um, I would say that Mike got me into climbing probably in about 98 and then uh, from there, you know, we'd go uh, on the weekends when, when we could. Um, and then I ended up, I'm, I'm going to make, you know, it's obviously a long story. I'll try and keep it somewhat short, but uh, it would have been in uh, 2003, I transitioned over to uh, pararescue and I became a search and rescue technician. And um, so I had a background in climbing and I had done some rope rescue courses uh, to kind of pad my resume to, for the application for SARTEC. So I had... The, the rope work skills. And um, I only, I was only in the trade for, for three years and I ended up starting a little hobby company and that company kind of took off. Uh, and the, the company, you know, I'm, we're, we're gonna talk about the rope aspect of it and everything today, but the company really was a, a medical training company. And then that's a whole other uh, tangent that, uh, that I don't think we'll get into today, but, but we started CTOMS to, to run medical training. And, um, uh, and that we still do that to today. And there's kind of like an arm of it that, uh, uh, I would say that it was comprehensive casualty management and because of just the personal interest in, uh, rope rescue and uh, just rope work in general, that it kind of evolved into developing some, um, some unique and, and novel systems. And we can get into those details a little bit later. I'll just let Mike introduce himself. Right on Mike. Yeah, so <clears throat> I, I mean, I was a career soldier. I learned before I joined the military. Uh, that was my introduction to kind of mountaineering. Um, never really became a passion of mine until maybe some 10 years later uh, when I was kind of in my mid 20s. And then from there, I kind of, you know, tried to try to integrate it into, into my career as best I could or integrate my career into climbing. So, uh, I mean, that led me into, you know, what courses I would take and, and what organizations I'd be among. And at some point I found myself like, uh, you know, teaching it a little bit as well as being a part of, you know, committees on where, where the future of, of uh, the Canadian military mountain operations were going. I ended up authoring a, a service paper on military mountaineering and some of the modernization um, that I thought, you know, the program needed to, to study. Um, and that kind of launched me into, you know, my, my career, which I ended in, in special forces, the last kind of half of my career, I was with special forces and I, I was with them as part of their, the, the preliminary program development for their, uh, tactical rope access program. It was kind of like an integrated 
all singing, all dancing, four season, kind of anywhere and everywhere uh, program. So, I mean, that was exciting. I was super lucky to be a part of that from its conception because I was I was working with a, a, a great team. And, um, you know, just to be able to contribute as little as I did to that team, I think was, was you know, set me up with a, a good position for the future. And then, you know, I grew within that organization in terms of rope access, but, you know, everything comes to an end. And as, as my career was kind of taking me more behind the computer and less out in the field, I, I kind of chose to kind of transition out. Chris and I, we had climbed for so long together that we'd always had a running conversation, like now spanning decades, about rope access, the future, what the needs were, uh, for the industry, in particular law enforcement, the military. And then he has a whole other dimensional uh, uh, kind of opportunity space for this in terms of the rope or his uh, pararescue background, as well as his experience with law enforcement and military. So anyway, um, you know, the opportunity existed where we, I could come up to see Tom's. We, we worked on some really great projects together. With, with Trace, like ex, extending Trace from where it was and and some new products. And yeah, so I mean, the future is bright. I think, you know, I, I believe we're probably at the, at the edge of technology right now and integrating that into small teams' abilities to travel light and travel safely. So I think that's, that's enough about me. <laughs> um. Real quick question, Chris, about CTOMS, and it's probably something we should do another podcast on is the medical side, because there is a huge component, obviously, of medical to rescue. I mean, rescue is just the transportation method. There is a goal in mind. Um, do you want to just give a little blurb about the medical training that CTOMS provides? Uh, yeah, so the I'm just trying to think about how much uh, detail to get into here on, on this now. Um, yeah, so I mean, we the the genesis of the medical training, like, and so yeah, I, I don't want to get into it a little bit, and I'll tr try and give you kind of the you know the Coles Notes version of it. So, when I joined the the army, I joined as an infantryman, but uh, when I started to kind of pad my resume because I, I had my sights on pararescue, you know, I took my EMR course, I took my EMT course, and then I got selected to go to SARTEC selection, and then 9/11 happened, and I just happened to be in the battalion that would go overseas. And uh, so I, I delayed uh, heading to selection in order to go to Afghanistan. So I deployed in, in early in February of, of 02. And then in April uh, of 02, we experienced the same, or sorry, the first, I should say, uh, casualties of the war. And that incident was my platoon. So it was very, very um, uh, close experience to, to me. Uh, and when I got back, I didn't want anybody, man, I realized we weren't properly trained. We weren't properly equipped, uh, just properly prepared to, to deal with kind of the, the new operational environments that we were working in. You know, I deployed to Bosnia a couple of times and granted there was certainly uh, casualties in Bosnia, especially early Bosnia, um, but it just didn't have the, I mean, even just tactical medicine in general just wasn't there. It was in its infancy uh, around that same time. 
And so when I got back, you know, I'm corporal cop, I'm bottom of the whole barrel. And I started this grassroots effort to uh, change the way first aid was, was taught to, to soldiers. And so I authored uh, Dispatches, which was um, the Army Lessons Learned publication. And I uh, create, I wrote a memo uh, to, through my chain of command. It ended up, you know, there's a convoluted way that it went, it ended up getting approved, but we end up uh, creating and running the very first tactical combat casualty care course in the summer of, of 03 uh, in Edmonton in the military. And it just, it, it kind of took off the, um, it was a, a huge success. The, again, a long story short, the military would eventually pick it up and, and standardize it as a qualification course. And it got to the point where um, you couldn't deploy or you didn't want to really deploy unless you had at least two members of your section per, you know, per eight to 10 guys, at least had the TCCC qualification. Um, and then uh, around that same time, uh, so we ran the course and literally the next day I, I turned in all my green kit and drew my blue kit and I'm off to, to Comox to start my, my SARTEC course. And uh, fast forward to when I was in squadron and I started my little hobby company. This was my passion. My passion was still tactical medicine. And as a SARTEC, you don't have that tactical um, kind of component to it anymore. And so it conceptualized the idea of, of creating a, a private company to run this type of training for law enforcement, because we saw a huge benefit to uh, particularly the, you know, the, um, uh, for lack of a better term, the, the, the SWAT teams or the tactical teams, the ERT teams, because uh, they're in very similar environments and have uh, very similar risks for penetrating trauma with proactive intelligent threats. And so um, I, it's like poking my finger into this, this void and I just got sucked in. And uh, I had the hardest decision of my life to make. And it was, do I, do I stay in the military and focus on my career, which was always my, my intent? Uh, or do I get out and just take this massive blind leap of faith uh, into a company that really didn't exist uh, at the time. And it was the right time, you know, I had just got my CD and uh, had, you know, just kind of, it was right in the middle of, of, uh, of a full career and it was either, you know, now or never. And so, so, so I did it. I got out and I haven't looked back since, you know, it was, it ended up being the right thing to do. And, and the company really took off. I mean, the, the stage was set and all the, the variables kind of, uh, we just really lucked out in that, not a, not long after we uh, I got out of the military, the military approached us and said, "Look, you know we uh, we've got this great course that you guys created for us when you're in the military, and um, it trains the soldiers. The medics are expected to teach the soldiers, but we don't have a course for the medics. And so it's a bit of the blind leading the blind right now. And they wanted to create again. There was the right person in the right position at the right time. It was um, Commander Ian Tory was his name." And uh, he wanted to create a course for the medics and he wanted to utilize resources that they had at, um, at CFP Suffield and uh, model it after the US. He said, we need to contract it out because operationally we're spread too thin. We don't have uh, organic capability. And so we ran a pilot course and uh, ended up turning into just a, a huge success. It ended up turning into mandatory pre-deployment training because it was so effective in training the medics that uh, that a medic, I think, so we ran that in January, 2007. By 
by certainly uh, the end of 2008, it was mandatory for a medic. It was almost a medical legal liability for them not to, to have the course when they deployed because it had just proven um, so effective for them. And so, you know, over over the period of time, we we uh, we developed the the capabilities uh, further. Um, we would train law enforcement uh, as well uh, as having that military contract, and it just kind of um, grew grew from there. Well, that's like I say, we're going to hit another podcast with that, I think, and maybe dig down into that. I mean, I've never taken any of your medical training. I have a bunch of friends that have deployed to pretty much every operational theater that people could imagine. And a lot of them have taken your program and they speak very, very highly of it. So, well, we'll have to get you out once we start running them again. <laughs> yeah, COVID, of course. Yeah. So what we were chatting about today, we're looking at is the rope side of the company. And I guess that probably started with, um, like you say, your climbing background, what have you. But I guess what really kind of hit C-Toms into my world was Trace. And at first it was that whole, oh my gosh, we're on six mil rope. <laughs> and uh, there's still a lot of people that look at that and go, oh my gosh, we're on six mil rope. So let's just start... <clears throat> Either one of you, you can decide what is Trace, where are the roots and foundation from it, and then we'll kind of dig down into, you know, the big question people are going to ask, and it's, it's the wrong question, but it's the one that's going to get asked is, is it safe? So that's kind of the progression we'll move through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I'll, I'll start with the history of it for sure. I think the seed was planted when I was, uh, again, when I was a search and rescue technician, and um, they sent us on rigging for rescue, which at the time was being run by Kirk Mothner out of his place. I think in T-shirt I'm wearing right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at the time, Kirk uh, Kirk was uh, running those, and um, you know, uh, Kirk and I had hit it off when when I was on the course, and, and another mutual friend of Mike and I, uh, Rob Coates. He was he's a Sartek. He's still Sartek as well. I heard him speak a couple of years ago at Eiders, Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. He he probably told the story of me falling in the crevasse. Yeah, that was the one. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so Rob and I were on the course, and the both both of us kind of hit it off with Kirk because uh, both Rob and I had a climbing background, and uh, and Kirk was just blowing our minds with the the depth of his knowledge into just the physics and and the the science of everything. It was it was quite impressive and just amazing to learn. And so one of the things that he had showed us was uh, the escape artist, which he had designed. Um, and he said the intent of it was uh, for the firefighter, the ability to anchor in and then kind of do a dynamic exit if, if need be, and it would have load limiting in the system. And he said, I remember him specifically saying, and, and this was where the seed was because it planted in the back of my mind and I kind of forgot that it was there until, until later. He said that, yes, the, you know, these can be, these devices can be redesigned for much, much smaller rope, depending on the capability, you know, and the requirements. So I just kind of, you know, put that away and then fast forward um, to, you know, I'm, I've started uh, Toms now, I've started the company and had a, uh, a guest instructor uh, come out that was, um, he was a medic for the U.S. Army Special Missions Unit. And uh, he was telling stories about when they were in Fallujah. And they were, 
what was happening and the, the, the flavor of the day, if you will, on the medical side was crush injuries. And the reason for that was that the tactics of, uh, of the bad guys at the time were that they were dropping buildings on guys. And so guys would helicopter in, land on the, on the roof, uh, and then the helicopters would leave, and then they'd realize that it was basically an ambush, and, uh, and then they'd blow the building with the guys on the roof, and they had no means of, of egress. Because at the time, the technology was, uh, you know, firefighters were really the only ones that had that, that, uh, that capability or, or where that capability was being designed for. And so he's telling me these stories, and it kind of connected to that little seed that uh, Kirk was telling me systems could get uh, quite smaller. And so I approached Kirk and I said, hey, you remember when uh, when he told us that he could go smaller with the escape artist? And again, I'll, I'll, I'll try and make, you know, these long stories a little bit shorter and not get into too much of the weeds. But uh, so if you take the, the QD, which is the, the, the current descent control device within Trace Systems, and uh, you go back to its great, great, great grandfather, the starting point of it was the escape artist. And actually uh, Sterling's uh, selling and marketing a, um, a product called the PDQ. And so the PDQ was actually developed by Kirk in the whole process of getting to the QD. Like we ended up with a PDQ in our hand and then we ended up uh, kind of abandoning it and shrinking it down and, and, and changing it and, and everything. But uh, um, that's kind of like in the middle there somewhere between, you know, uh, I don't know, eight or 10 uh, devices between this, the escape artist and, and the QD. Now, initially it was just uh, for a, um, for an egress system for a bailout kit that was uh, nice and small. And what we needed, we're like, well, what about just adding a little bit more capability to it? What about uh, climbing the rope uh, as well. And so at the time, uh, Mark Twight was working with, um, with Rock Thompson and on Rock Exotica's website back then, they had this page where they had like specialist devices and it was just kind of for information only. And they had, uh, a, and their, their key device they didn't show though, but they had, I think there was the little pulley and a, maybe a micro eight and a rope grab for a micro rope and they were they were working with different rope than we were and we were playing around with different rope and, and the ropes are a little bit again we can talk about the rope in a sec uh, second but um they were using a dyneema core rope at the time and uh we wanted to stay well away from dyneema just because of the melt point the strength was was incredible but the melt point was of a big concern um but back to the devices he had the rope grab there and so Kirk and I had, uh, you know, conversations on this and, and we're like, what if we put a shiv in where that carabiner hole is? And so Kirk would uh, talk to Rock and Rock would make the modifications. And, uh, and then the QA, so uh, Rock was calling it the TactiGrab. And uh, the development of the TactiGrab or the QA or the Quickie A-Sender, if uh, for, uh, you know, what we would call it, pardon me, or we call it we would go back and forth and it went through a bunch of iterations. And uh, I would say, hey, can you put um, a spring in the cam? Cause we want it to hold it on the rope. And uh, then Kirk would uh, design it, take that to rock. And then rock would produce it until we get to, to where we are now, which is the, the latest. And again, you know, there's, uh, 
there, lots of stuff happens in, in business and uh, um, we rock's not making them anymore. Uh, the manufacturer of the QD is now actually making them and we've replaced, there was, you know, problems with the, the shiv. Uh, so we replaced the shiv with, um, with brass. And so uh, there's a whole bunch of iterations of that, but the very original one was a, a, a rope grab that, um, that Mark was, uh, Mark and rock were using way back when. So let's get back to kind of the, the evolution of it all for a sec here. And as I, I know, I'm going on these tangents about the devices specifically, but so what ended up happening is we went down to Kirk's place and we did our first kind of batch of testing. Once we got the, the devices to where they were, like, cause the, the process of what would happen is Kirk's the, the, the brains, he does the design of it. And, uh, we'll get the rope from, you know, a rope manufacturer, work with the rope manufacturer to kind of uh, um, define or refine it to what we need. And in this case, it was, uh, we were just taking off the shelf ropes. Um, and uh, the Sterling TRC uh, was what we ended up landing on. And we did testing on their power cord and, and things like that. But it was, it was just the, even though it was a weaker rope than the power cord, the power cord was the opposite. It was a Technora core with a nylon sheath. And the team used a nylon core with a Technora sheath, but we were popping sheaths on the power cord, even though it was a stronger rope, it was the sheaths were getting destroyed in the testing. And so we did all this testing, we landed on the TRC. And uh, I think the, we did, you know, slow pull tests and we did um, drop tests. And I think with Kirk on the initial batch, the highest fall factor we had done was a 0.4. And uh, then when we got back to Edmonton, we, we were really curious and uh, we had an outdoor tower uh, set up at the time. So we're like, let's really, really push this. We're using a one kilonewton test mass. And uh, we're like, let's see what, if it'll take a factor of one. And then, and it, and it stopped it. it, it, it arrested the load. And then we're like, well, let's just go all out. Let's do a factor two fall. And so like these, this huge, like the amount of force on this whole system but they're catching these factor two falls with one kilonewton loads on, on six mil rope. And we're like, and now all of a sudden you see where this is going. You're like, just based on, on those tests that we repeated, like you can climb on this now. Yeah, you, can climb bridge, it. Yeah, you can bridge with this now. You can do rescue work with this. You can do everything with it now because, and not only that is that it, with the force limiting, because the force limiting is built into the uh, into the devices, you don't need a stretchy rope and uh, you don't need a dynamic rope and a low stretch rope, high stretch, low stretch. You you can just get away with the one rope because you're using physics in a different in a different way. And um, yeah, so that's then we just started really pushing the the testing and developing the the systems. And, you know, we would get to, and this took over, you know, periods of years, we would do little mini, um, mini uh, high lines, just, you know, the, the width of the tower, and we would put two kilonewton loads on, fail them. And then we had the unique opportunity um, in the Netherlands, uh, underneath a drawbridge of, of all places, where we actually were able to do a 20, a real test on a 25 meter high line, where we would fail the main line and, uh, and just see, uh, you know, what would happen and it was um so we, we did full length uh tests on on you know highline failures and they were all uh successful and and the the system just kept surprising us and surprising us and to the point where 
you know, when we objectively started comparing it to big systems, you know, if you were going to do a high line with traditional, you know, 11 mil and all the big, uh, the big equipment, it was about two duffel bags and about 80 pounds. And you could do the same capability, you had the same capability with about 22 pounds of, uh, of trace systems equipment. And so, you know, when you're looking at it from an operational perspective on how much gear you got to carry, then it's, it's a significant reduction. And the other thing is too, you know, when you're doing operational planning on the military law enforcement side, a lot of times you're looking at how much weight you're already carrying and you're saying, oh my God, this, this may happen. We may need it if we need it. We'll, you know, we'll just have to improvise something at the time or figure it out at that time. Then there was a year uh, where, you know, the, the highlight of the, the SOMA conference, Special Operations Medical Association conference is the casualty vignettes. And there was five casualty vignettes and three of them had high angle uh, problems. One was confined space, actually. Three of the five. And I'm like, man, this is such a, and nobody's carrying a capability for it. You know, like think about how many soldiers have fallen into a well. Afghanistan, and, yeah, there's right, uh, right? Captain that died, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, even back in small, like all these places, it's it's a thing, and there's no capability, you know, that's quickly accessible to to rescue these guys. The the three vignettes, if I remember off the top of my head, one was just get, getting a guy off a roof, uh, and it was only a one story roof, but it was really problematic. Uh, another one was. Um, a guy had fallen down a uh, like a, a rugged cliff uh, in the in the middle of an actual uh, firefight in during combat, and uh, it was just his his rescue was was quite problematic. And then the third one was um, was a guy was, fell into they were coming up to the back of the Chinook, you know, in, in brownout and noise and everything, and then they, they just and he was pushing a motorcycle, and they just disappeared, and he disappeared into a hole that went quite far down that they, they didn't even know uh, was there. And it talked about using the, the winch uh, in the, the back of the Chinook to, to extract them out of there. And it was problematic because there was no edge protection. It was just digging right into the dirt. And when he came up to the top, he was getting sucked into the, um, into the, the, the wedge that it was creating. And it was just a, a, a bad scene because the, in the improvisation of trying to figure this all out, it creates much more dangerous circumstances. Whereas we were able to offer solutions that were light, that were so lightweight that now when you're mission planning, you can look at it and, and it's not 15 pounds of gear, it's four pounds of gear. So now when you scrutinize it, you're like, yeah, it might be good if we can actually bring that along because if we need to get a casualty off the roof, you know, we can do it much safer than, uh, than trying to improvise something at the time, so. It's interesting. I'm going to go over just a few items for listeners that may not understand them. You mentioned a CD when you're in the military. It indicates 12 years of service. You're halfway through your career. The SOMA conference is North Carolina usually. Uh, well, it used to be in Tampa for Tampa? forever. And then, yeah, they, the last three years it was in um, Charlotte. Charlotte, okay. Yeah, and then it, they canceled it last year. I think it's in Raleigh next year, but don't quote me on that. For rescuers, if you can get a chance to go even take a look at that, it is a very interesting conference to be involved in. There's a lot of crossover. Um, you talk about capabilities with things like that. And just you talk about the vignettes at SOMA. I ended up in one of those countries training a team 
before I'd met you on like XO style systems, because they had the same problem. They had someone roll down a hill in a uh, failed state in a combat environment where they had problems getting them up. So yeah, this is certainly applicable to different trades and different uh, units that are out there. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so the kit itself, what's, um, what are the pieces? What are the strengths of it? Um, what are the slippages? If you don't mind sharing some of that, just because the people out there that I always run into and they see it with us. And I mean, we've taken it to lightweight courses where people are like, you know, seven and a half, eight, and we pull up this six and they're like, oh my gosh, that's dangerous. You're on seven and a half. It's not really that much of a leap. And your seven and a half devices are bastardized. This is actually a, a created system. So what can we talk about with that? Yeah. So, you know, the rules change when you, when you start going really small and um, because you've got these big, you know, if you look at how force was uh, managed, let's talk about like dynamic force applications and how was that managed uh, traditionally. And it's managed by either brute force strength, like in, in rescue systems. Uh, if you think of uh, an edge transition fall with a rescue load, you're, you're, you're preventing uh, systemic failure uh, or a catastrophic failure of your system just through brute force strength. When you go climbing and you take big lead fall whippers, you're managing that, that dynamic force application through stretch in the rope. And so when you get really small, you don't really have, you know, just brute strength anymore because you're tiny. And uh, you can't really get a strong enough, you know, tensile wise uh, with a dynamic rope that small either. And so, you know, this is Kirk's engineering in, into the devices and it's, it's a bit of a balancing act, you know, because you can't just do it. It doesn't work with every, every rope is going to have different properties on a given device. And this is why it's so important. You mentioned, you know, like, uh, a lot of systems that are out there are just mishmash and people think that it's okay because they go to MEC or REI and they just buy off these shelf things and then they go to another store and they buy the specialist rope and they think, oh, because I can buy all this stuff, I can put it together and it's, you know, air quotes safe. And it's not exactly true once you start getting into these really small systems. And so strength is a bit of a, you know, it, it's not that simple to just say how strong is the system. Um, because we have force reduction. And so let's, you know, let's talk about this. One of the biggest things on top of all this is your, your flexural fatigue or your cycle fatigue of these ropes. And, you know, aramid fibers, the, the strength deterioration curve on them. And what I mean by that is every time they go through a, a descent control device, it it weakens the rope. And, you know, you see this because in the old days, we used the way we used to cycle them was we would put, you know, a weight vest on or something on us to get us up to one kilonewton uh, if we weren't that big. And uh, then we would just do these repels and run up the stairs or up the ladder and repel and up the stairs and repel. And, and you just, your t-shirt would be covered in technora dust because it's just flaking off the rope with every cycle that you do. And of, of course the rope's getting weaker because half of, half of the rope's on my t-shirt now, right? And you know, this is another concept that I, 
that I, I don't think a lot of people take into consideration is what is the cycle fatigue of a rope? And, and it's going to be different with different devices, it's going to be different with different ropes. You know, and a lot of like the bailout for the fire is uh, Technora sheath with Technora core, which is great because the, the fire resistance on Technora is, is fantastic. But it's important to understand that uh, the, the strength deterioration curve falls off a cliff. You know what? I'm going to tell a story here. It's, and I won't mention what agency this happened to, but they had, I want to say it was a Kevlar rope, but, but don't quote me on that. But it was an aramid rope and they had this new system that it, uh, for, for an egress in a certain circumstance, okay? And they trained it and they trained it uh, relatively often and they didn't log their, uh, their use on it. And eventually they had a rope break in their training. And a guy got hurt, he, did, he had a 10 foot fall and, and uh, you know, ground fall and, uh, and hurt himself. And so I was asking questions about this. I'm like, don't you log the, the cycles? And they say, yeah, well, we do now. And, uh, and I, I said, well, how many cycles uh, until you retire it? And, uh, and he, it, was, it was a joke, it's a joke, but it's not a joke. And he said, well, we don't know. What'll probably happen is we'll just, we'll wait until the next one breaks and then back it off 10 cycles. <laughs> like, okay. there's, there's your one Sigma. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where they're at now, but uh, yeah, if you're using airman fibers, you need to understand that there's cycle fatigue. And, and so go, just going back to tray systems, um, because there'd be a lot of critique on it because we actually did cycle fatigue testing on it. And uh, we said that, okay, you know, the brand new tensile, actually not tensile was kind of irrelevant because um, the rope, it was tensile was uh, 15, but you had to connect it some way and that you couldn't tie a knot in it because it dropped. So to give you our, our per, like our threshold that we came up with that was acceptable, it was eight kilonewtons. So we didn't want anything below eight kilonewtons. And we can get into the math of that. And I'll, maybe I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. There's one simple equation that's probably worth discussing. But um, what happened was uh, eight kilonewton was kind of our threshold. Tensile was 15 at the sewn termination because you couldn't tie a knot in it. And it's not that a knot, a knot may have been okay in a brand new rope, but in a knot in a cycled rope was, was the issue. And so we did sewn terminations. The sewn terminations were 14 kilonewtons. And then uh, when you cycled the rope through the QD at 25 cycles, you, you were on average around 10 kilonewtons of tensile strength. And then at 100 cycles, you're at about eight kilonewtons. And so we would put this information out there and it's like some agencies have policy that says we are at a 10 to one safety ratio. And if we're working with a one, uh, our, you know, our standards are one kilonewton load. I'm like, well, there you go. Then you have to retire your rope after 25 uh, cycles because your tensile is uh, at that. If you're comfortable with pushing it out to eight, you're good to go for, uh, for 100 cycles. But there's an insurance package built into the system and that is the, the load limiting. So let's say for example, you know, and, and I've seen this where on like the third use of a brand new rope, somebody does an edge transition and it just pendulums just a little bit across a, you know, a sharp concrete edge. Uh, quite a bit of sheath damage. Maybe you notice it, maybe you don't. So let's say you don't notice it. And if theoretically you were to uh, 
uh, slow pull test that at that point. And let's just say it would be like, it would break at six kilonewtons, like it's horrible sheath damage. Uh, and the, the rope tensile strength at six kilonewtons. And now this guy does a huge edge transition fall and he's gonna load the system. And again, let's just say theoretically, it's so big, it's so bad that he's theoretically gonna generate a potential of seven kilonewtons of, of force onto the system. The insurance package is in the load limiting of the device. And so the device will slip depending on the condition of the rope and if it's wet or dry or all these other things, but between three and four kilonewtons and the, the most, uh, the highest I've ever seen the slip force, the slip peak force uh, on, a, on a chart is 5.7. And that I believe was with a frozen rope. Um, and, and the testing was actually done in minus 36. So it was pretty, it's pretty accurate. The, the, when it rips through the device, it just mists in the air because the, it melts it and then it just kind of evaporates right away in, in the cold. Um, but even if you, in the worst case scenario, it's minus 36 out and your rope is soaked and frozen and you take the big whipper, theoretically that rope shouldn't break even at six kilonewtons because you're only generating uh, 5.7 uh, or the, the device is limiting the, uh, the force exposed to the system to 5.7. So I hope I explained that so, so it makes sense. Yeah, so for the viewers that are out there right now, um, they're always looking for slip numbers on IDs and clutches and stuff. And we're talking mm -hmm. about a similar thing here, the slip number on a QD or a quickie descender. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I'll just add the caveat when, when you talk about like traditional gear, I am so deep into this micro rope system rabbit hole. I've, I've become honestly completely ignorant to, <laughs> to the big systems and the devices that are out there. I try and keep up with, you know, the current trends and, and things like that, but I just, I don't get into to the weeds on it. So, um, but yeah, if, if the, the, uh, the principles are the same, then, then, then that's great. This is another interesting point, just as a tangent on it is we tell teams this all the time, whatever rope you have and whatever devices you're using, go out and drop on them and figure out what your slip forces are, because depending on the rope that the manufacturer did their testing with, you are going to get different numbers. And if you're hanging your hat on, you know, five and it's actually eight, there's a, you know, make sure you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. There's so many variables that, that are going to affect it. Right. And, uh, you know, how old the rope is as, as the rope we found as the rope got older, uh, got a little bit more slippery. Um, so, you know, it's just details like that. Yeah. Right on. Um, you mentioned a formula. Yeah. So we played around with, so again, this formula is, is Kirk's formula and uh, what it is, is it's determining the, the minimum acceptable strength of your system. And you know this this is going to play into uh, kind of the next topic. I don't think trace systems is quite done yet, but it, it certainly, you know, once we got to trace systems, um, we were like, how small can we can we go? <laughs> because we thought we were just going to do egress with with a six mil rope, and we ended up doing literally everything. Uh, so we're like, well, then we can get a lot smaller with egress. And so this equation plays a you know an important role in in the analysis of, of this and and what it is is you take your, your your working load and so let's say your working load is is just one kilonewton and you multiply that by 
one of two numbers depending on what your system is. And so if your system uh, isn't load limiting, then you're going to multiply it by a jolt factor. And, and this is important to do because sometimes your load limiting system can get fouled and, and it kind of negates the whole load limiting uh, component of it. So um, now again, the jolt factor is not a fall. It's, it's a, a fall factor of zero. So you're going from zero stretch to, uh, to just maximum stretch of the system instantly. And it's a, it's a measured amount and it'll, it'll vary between systems, but it's, it's never, and I hesitate to say never, but it's never supposed to be higher than 2.5. So if you have a one kilonewton load, you should never see uh, higher than 2.5 kilonewtons uh, you know, on your load cell reading uh, when you do a jolt test. Um, so for the QA, for example, uh, after repeated testing over and over with the TRC rope is 2.3. But you always use a 2.5 as kind of like a, a standard. If for whatever reason you get a higher number, it was likely a very low fall factor where you had a bit like of slack in the rope as opposed to just release the stretch. And, um, and so what you do is you take the, the working load, you multiply it by the fall factor, sorry, not the fall factor, you multiply it by the jolt factor uh, or the, the uh, slip, uh, the slip uh, fact, not factor, but the, the slip uh, uh, number <laughs> for that device, right? And then you just double it. So for example, if, uh, if you're just repelling, there's no risk of a dynamic force application. Uh, you're using one person loads. So you got one person times 2.5, and then doubled as five kilonewtons. So theoretically, you can get away with a five kilonewton uh, system. Like the weakest point in the system is five kilonewtons if you're just doing repels with one person. And that's a lot lower than I think a lot of people would expect or be comfortable with, but there's a huge amount of, um, of safety factor in there, you know, all things considered. And so what we would do, you know, with the QD, you can apply this with the QD and the QA for that matter, depending on the conditions. And so you take, you know, an, a, a, a one kilonewton load times the, the slip uh, force on the device. And let's say it's a four, you know, like it would be at three, but you always want to uh, uh, use the higher number. If it's wet, you use a five. If it's frozen, you use six, for example. So you take one kilonewton, let's just say it's a, a dry rope times four and then double it. So you're at eight kilonewtons. So that's how we got to the eight. And we were comfortable with eight was you know uh, through through that equation. Then um, the uh, you know if you end up having it, tying it, why we we didn't go with knots for example is if you cycle fatigue test your rope down to eight kilonewtons right so you got a hundred cycles on this and you tie a knot in it I mean you're probably at five and you're still probably okay to repel on it but. Uh, and in practicality, if for whatever reason your sewn termination was compromised and you had to tie a knot in it, you're probably going to be fine. But just understand that if you have a rope that's cycled to eight, uh, sorry, to eight, 100 times to eight kilonewtons, you tie a knot in it. And that knot, again, just as a, a rounded ballpark figure, like what do you usually use for a strength reduction with a knot? You hear it all over. It can be anywhere from 30 to 50%, right? Yeah. So, so again, we're always... From a liability perspective of a company, we're always taking a worst case scenario. And so we use 50%, right? 
And so where are we at? We're at four kilonewtons and four kilonewtons is lower than the acceptable five. And so we're like, no, there's no knots. We have to do slow terminations. Again, in emergency situation, you're, you're, you're okay. But uh, Okay, and for folks out there that are listening from a rescue background, some of these numbers are going to sound really familiar. I mean, when we talk about jolt forces on a twin tension rope system, we talk about two to two and a half times of the load when you get the transfer over to the other rope. Not a fall, a transfer and that little bit of stretch. Yeah. So these aren't numbers that folks in the rescue world don't understand. They, I mean, maybe they don't understand it, but they're certainly playing with them right now. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess on another tangent, we talk a lot about Kirk, um, base camp innovations. If you want to go take training, that's will blow your mind. I mean, we've sent instructors there last October. We have another course coming up this May. Uh, we send a lot of our people there because he's just got the, he, he looks at it like Keanu Reeves in the matrix, like Nero. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the only way really to describe it, you know. He he's seeing like crap coming off stuff that you have no idea about. So if you ever want to get your mind blowing, go take a Kirk course. Yeah, can't recommend it enough, definitely. So Trace, where's Trace going then? So the there's I'd say there's two new innovations, and hopefully we can get Mike into the conversation on this. How you um, doing, Mike? <laughs> I wasn't sleeping. Yeah. True soldier. Yeah, the, the, the two newest things are uh, we've got a new rope that's uh, that's ready. It's uh, it's available um, and took a, a ton of testing to get there. Um, but uh, this rope was as opposed to an off the shelf. This was a, a custom one that we worked with and developed. And there's there's minor differences, but there's the, the biggest uh, the biggest improvement is the ability to tie knots. So we got rid of the sewn terminations. And then the other uh, innovation is another device, a descent control device, which is, um, it's beyond trace in that it will work with up to an eight mil rope. So it's not just strictly a trace systems device like the QA and the QDR. Um, but it, uh, uh, maybe I'll just let Mike actually talk a, a bit about uh, the rope and the Q8. Yeah, so the, the Gen 2 rope for trace systems, it really, it's, it starts to uh, push us beyond like the, the, what the known thresholds were for what was available at the time on the market and then, you know, designing gear around it or, you know, with it. So, so Chris's partner, he's got some partners out there, obviously, you know, like Kirk and some of the other you know, uh, key, key people in manufacturing, especially with ropes. Um, so he's partnered with, with rope manufacturer to kind of like, uh, to start looking at, at crossing these thresholds of technology and, and increasing or improving the products going towards, um, you know, what, what, what the current kind of culture in, in in rope access views as as the the no-go areas for for small diameter ropes so with that you know we've actually crossed the threshold with this gen 2 rope where it actually moves us closer to what everyone is kind of familiar with with you know single rope technique tying knots in your your nine mil rope uh, you know, and, and doing lead climbs with it and everything that that climber knows how to do based on traditional Kind of rope access or 
traditional, you know, uh, climbing practices, we're kind of getting into that realm with with uh, small diameter ropes. And it, I think this is this is a, a good direction because, you know, your your training deltas are going to be easier. You know, the culture climbers are a tribe. Uh, you know, rope access technicians they're a tribe, and you know any any kind of revolution in rope technology, it kind of takes time, but it, 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 more importantly, it takes miles. People need to see proof. Proof has to be tangible. So, I mean, the only way to kind of get there is actually to integrate all the elements of the device, especially with, well, from my observations, we were talking small diameter ropes. You have to integrate right now the devices with the current technology of the rope. So that's kind of what has been accomplished with this Gen 2 trace rope. But at the end of the day, where like what was important for me uh, is what is the team guy looking at for going into his rucksack, uh, his or her ruck on on the mission? And that could be like, you know, what what do they have to have on their back? In addition to all this stuff they just need that's uh, germane to their loadout, you know, body armor, ammunition, radios, all, all that stuff. You know, how much more weight are we increasing on that person's back? And then expecting them to run up a few flights of stairs or uh, play the long game and be out in the, in the woods for a few weeks, you know, climbing in technical terrain above 10 grand, you know, what, what are the human factors? Well, like back to, you know, Chris and I, we were on that, that initial deployment together post 9-11. And we were, we were out there uh, with, with retro gear, uh, big, thick ropes uh, that, you know, I was a mule for a rope for, for like a week. And uh, we used it for maybe four hours. Uh, to go, kind of go in, into some caves and everything. And I, I was, I remember sitting there looking at that rope thinking maybe I should kind of may, maybe make a shrine out of it and hang it on my wall for the rest of my life for the fact that I was the servant to this rope in the mountains for above 10 grand and to, to my frustration. So when Chris started talking, like uh, he brought me in the conversation like probably later in the game, uh, back in 2012. And he was talking about micro rope systems and uh, immediately I was, uh, you know, I latched onto it with uh, my, my perception and, and my, you know, my dealings with, with SOF uh, and rope access there is, you know, I would urge anything you do, it has to be integrated. He was already there. And what I mean through integrated is you, you can never have one piece of gear that does one job or you got to really question the, the why you're actually putting it in your pack. So the integration came with this micro system that, you know, it's half the weight. The rope is half the weight of say a 60 meter, you know, 10 mil rope. So right off the bat, that becomes attractive, definitely to me, if I'm the guy that has to carry it. But, you know, it has to do everything everything in a standard mission profile, the military for, or law enforcement for rope access, climb, repel, bridge, haul, rescue, all of it. And then 
you know, I think with this next stage, now you start to make it easier to actually train your team because a lot of them are kind of have some familiarity with rope access already. Like a lot of a lot of kids that go to school now, they they actually go to a rock gym or whatever as part of school. Like when I went to school in Southern Alberta, that kind of was not a thing at all. Nothing was a thing. Really. Online were a thing. <laughs> Kind of, you know, you had to go through the process like we all did. So, like, generally, people are a little more comfortable, a little more familiar with that stuff. So, with with the Gen Two rope, what we've done or what Chris was able to do is design a rope. And then I was around for a lot of the testing. We did just under three hundred individual kind of tests, a lot of drops, a lot of slow pulls, and then there were some practical ones. Uh, you know, just kind of the general look and feel of, of a repel or, or whatever. And, you know, we got an increase of strength out of it. So where the, the initial kind of rope was going at 15 kilonewtons, we're just under 18 kilonewtons with this current one. So, and everything that comes with that, I mean, the, the you're, we're not bound to sewn terminations with it. We can, you know, there's more room to, uh, to use knots or whatever. And then now what's the next bound look like? Are we gonna be able to get over 20 kilonewtons? You know what I mean? So it's it's definitely part of a process. We're on gen two right now and the technology is gonna to continue to evolve. And as you can tell by talking to Chris, there's layers, like there are deep layers there. And I wanna point out like back when we were climbing before we, before it became our jobs or whatever, we were still really passionate about just getting out there, getting on the ice and in the rock. He had already, he had already started pursue rope for education and rope force dynamics. I, who who did you take your? I think it was Cyril. Cyril, it, yeah. Went and took the course. The first ones with yeah. Was yeah. that the University of Alberta? No, no, it's just through through his cor, uh, company Rescue Dynamics and uh, and then you know, five, doesn't he? What's that, sorry? He started at QL5, wasn't it? Or the current contract, but he he's he's ran that for years and yeah. years. So um yeah, so I took the course through him initially and uh and then I just got into to aid climbing was my big thing, and I couldn't find a, a, a partner, so I would just start doing solo aid climbing, like on the in the Rockies in this limestone jaws. <laughs> People thought it was nuts, but I just loved to go out there and solve all these these problems is just like one little piece problem after another right <laughs> like, like we'd be hanging on a blade chris would say something about vector forces rob and i would look at each other and and things were turning in our heads and things were cooking and we're we're trying to catch up like so at a very like years before i got involved in in the depths of rope force dynamics like chris was already there when we were just going out you know trying to look cool and the LCF is important. <laughs> With the new rope, then, are you getting more cycles out of it, Mike? Yeah, we are. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, we <clears throat> we ran a test out to, we cycled it out to 100 cycles, and we started doing tests on it. And, I mean, they're really encouraging. Didn't we do it to 200? Yeah. And then, oh, okay. Sorry. And then we went out to 200 to think, oh, my God, like, how much are we going to get out of this stuff? And it... I mean, it, we were able to achieve just over 10 kilonewtons of it. And just to put this into perspective, it, it takes 
how long did it, it takes about one week full time for one person to cycle 60 meters of rope 200 times yeah it's like five full like it's not a it's not a cheap and quick procedure so you have one person sitting there full time you know nine to five cycling this rope for five days and then you have 60 meters of it to do your drop tests and your slow pulls and and everything else on it and that's a super fun job by the way <laughs> anyone that's interested in coming like we we're actually sifting through a big pile of uh resumes and cvs right now so get your name in you know if you want any chance of coming and cycling rope for a week because we need more people to do that now now it's not climbing the stairs and the ladder anymore though <laughs> You get you get to actually sit in a chair. Yeah, <laughs> you should tell that it's a workout. That's right. There you go. Former soft, former sartex. You know, just come here and do this for a week. This yeah. is where you want to go with your career. The new device, Mike. You allowed us to post a picture of it online a few, well, probably six months ago, and our social media lit up with that. A lot of people wondering what the heck it was, where we had pulled this from. Um, you want to talk a little bit about it? The Q8. So Chris will have the background on it, but I'll I'll elaborate on kind of what it allows you to do. Like some of the some of the feedback we had from the from the Quickie Descender. Quickie Descender is a solid a solid uh, descender. It does what it's kind of designed to do, and uh, super small, super lightweight. So the Q8 is kind of another. It's kind of an enhancement uh, to the trace system, but what it allows, it permits a more of a dynamic repel. So like if you were like a caver or like a, a if you wanted to use this for, uh, you know, a rescue system or whatever, do you really need it? Well, I, I don't know. But I, what I do know is like if you're if you're involved in in a tactical environment, could be hostage rescue, it could be like military assault uh, type kind of uh, application where you actually need to balance your descent rate um, with say an entry. Perhaps like there was a, a hostage rescue done in Toronto some years ago by the attack team there where they had to exit one balcony via rope, descend down to enter another balcony to affect the, uh, the hostage, mis uh, hostage rescue. And it, it was a great success. And, you know, I mean, unfortunately for those poor guys, fortunately for those poor guys, it went perfect. Unfortunately for them, every TV camera um, was already there for a few hours prior to them, you know, launching off the balcony. So what this does with the trace system, it enables that same dynamic entry technique where the descent, uh, the operator has full control of, of the descent. It's Kind of like premised on a on a figure eight device, has a cleat on the side to secure um, the repeller if they need to tie off or whatever. But it essentially it's for something super fast, super controlled um, for a well trained team to affect really high end, uh, high risk rope access uh, operations. Like what well, what's the background when you visualize the key? that q3 yeah and, and then it facilitates a like a, a rapid uh escape from the rope system too right that's that's right yeah. yeah so 
Yeah, I know the, the manufacturer of the QA and the QD, he had this sitting there for, oh my God, years and years and years ago. And he, I remember him sending me out one of the originals and say, hey, is, is there any interest in this? And it, it never, this was well even before trace systems. Uh, and we were kind of focusing on that and it just kind of got shelved and never really went anywhere. And then, uh, yeah, when we were ready, we, we kind of picked it back up and just evolved it. There's, yeah. Randy would be the guy that, that would have all, all oh, yeah. the details, yeah. So what, what Chris did, really innovative, is, you know, at the bottom of your repel when you're doing a, a military law enforcement kind of action, at the bottom of the repel is probably your most vulnerable point because you have to disconnect from the rope. Um, and, you know, if you're proximate to a target, uh, you don't want to take a lot of time messing around with a carabiner or whatever, you're taking your eyes off the target or off your, you know, threat areas. You're focusing downward, you know, and if you're wearing goggles, I mean, that could be a problem too. So uh, where the innovation of this design came in is once you are down at the bottom and you're kind of on your knee or standing on the ground or whatever, um, there's a double action you can go through that quickly jettisons the device and disconnects it from you. So to, just to be clear though, that's not my design. Like that's, that's Ram, that's all Randy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, he hit it on the park because for sure, yeah. th that's a game changer. And at, initially there was like a, a two methods. You could quick release it from yourself and then quick release the device from the rope. And we just kind of went with, uh, the one design so that you would have, you still connect it to your harness via carabiner. But, you know, it, again, it keeps it small, but it keeps it light and it keeps it simple. So for an end user perspective, the training deltas as well, you know, everything is subject to skill pay. And the last thing you want to do is create a, a rope device that is so complex that it requires a currency. I mean, you know, Shooters and tacticians and tactical officers, they need to chase down currencies anyway. So, I mean, with this system, the Q8, there is an is a innovation for sure. Um, and it keeps it simple, keeps it light. Right on. Um, because of time, and I don't want to keep you guys all day, I'm really enjoying the conversation. Can we jump into the next version of lightweight systems? and? This, from my fire background, is of interest to me, and it's one of the things you'd kind of said earlier, Chris, about, um, you know, having to choose certain things. And there's a fire department back east, and they got rid of their buddy breathers off of their SCBAs in order to integrate escape systems onto their SCBAs. So what they're doing now is they're choosing life safety equipment over other life safety equipment to make a decision in a point of time for a future event that they don't really know, you know, is going to happen. And yet they are changing out these systems. And I, I just found that to be very problematic when it's like, okay, we've got so much bulk now, much like what the military has had to go through is what's important enough for me to carry. I mean, I'm running around, I've got two mil on a elaborate kind of carabiner setup in my turnout gear pocket. Um, I wouldn't give it to anybody on my crew, but I mean, for me, it works. I understand the physics and the dynamics of it. But when I saw the system Mike had brought out a while back, I mean, my eyes just lit up and went, 
you know, ski patrollers when you're heading up, when I, you know, used to do patrolling and you're coming out of chairlifts, ski patrollers, a lot of them carry a system with them. Um, I mean, even things like crevasse for an ACMG or particularly for my background was this fire escape system. So what can you tell us about it? And I've kept it very generic. I haven't released a name or anything, but go ahead. I'll let one of you. Uh, no, no, that. Yeah. Like we said earlier, I don't mind. We can, we can do kind of the first public disclosure of, of the newest system here. You guys get the exclusive <laughs> <laughs> reveal. Um, but yeah, so I'm, again, you know, let's, get into where this all kind of started. And uh, I think I mentioned earlier is once we've discovered that trace, you can do everything with trace systems, uh, then the, the next question was, well, if we just wanted to egress, how the question is how small can you go? How small safely can you go? And so I've got, I, I have some two mil, I have some two mil, like literally Technora core dynam, uh, dyna, or sorry, uh, Technora sheath dynamic core, like trying to, how can you get uh, the maximum strength? And, you know, I think I went a little bit too far. It was too small doing the tests on it. You know, we ended up with a, uh, I think it's a Palomar knot. It's like a fishing knot. Build surgeon's knot. You're using fishing line knot because our rope was so bloody small and um, we still weren't getting what, what we needed. So, you know, we're bumping it up. We ended up uh, abandoning, um, the uh, the Kern Mantle construction, we end up landing on hollow block. We, we've got a Technora rope now. The, the biggest problem to solve, and again, you know, you have to take, you have to approach these systematically. We're not going to put the cart before the horse and start uh, start with a device and then figure out a rope afterwards. Like the, the biggest problem to solve, the hardest problem to solve was the eye. It will, you know, you can't tie a knot if uh, if you're tying a knot you need you need a big rope right because the strength reduction and everything and so again we work with like mike was saying we work with our, our, our rope manufacturer one of our rope manufacturer partners and uh we ended up landing we call it the delta rope as the development rope because it was the, the fourth one which is actually not a lot of iterations uh considering as you're getting better at it <laughs> yeah yeah the device went through 15 I think or something 70 as the device has a lot, but uh, we'll talk about the device in a second, but we needed to do the rope first. And so we, we got to eight kilonewtons. Cause again, that was, that was our goal. Eight kilonewtons at the eye. Uh, again, we could totally have gone down to five, but again, just, just with the, the, the reality of, uh, <laughs> real life shall we say injecting it in there we're like oh you know when it comes to actual loads and sharp edges and and mr murphy all of that yes so um we got to eight kilonewtons on a 3.8 mil uh hollow block rope so we're at 3.8 mil i don't know of anybody that's doing anything smaller if, if anybody's aware please please let us know i'm curious um so we have a rope great and now the next and and you know you're we're working with priorities or a company and so the r d uh, needs to follow uh demand so it's moving it slow it's like a little side project and then uh we got an rfi so we got a request for information from uh, the u.s air force and uh, they were looking at trace systems for replacing their um their tree egress from uh, after a pilot would eject because the current technology they're using is it's still a Vietnam era system. <clears throat> and so 
what we told them was like, well, we're actually in the process of working on something better. And what was so great about that was they already had the, the spec sheet. And so now we had a spec sheet that we could use to kind of really narrow in on, on what the device uh, needed to, the capability that it needed to meet. And so it bumped it up in the priority list and uh, we started, we approached Kirk and uh, started developing the device. And I'll, I'll turn that over to Mike because I, I really, uh, um, I, I kind of gave that to him to, to tackle, so. Yeah, that, you know, working on that system was, was quite an adventure. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so like the first day we had the first prototype device that Kirk made um, we're at the CTOMS like testing facility, the testing tower. And it was, um, you know, we had Gord Irwin there. Gord Irwin was, uh, he, he worked for Parks Canada for decades. Real great career. He was in the public safety side of it. So he did all a lot of mount rescue um, and uh, just a wealth of experience. So he was there on day one of the testing. And, uh, you know, we the parameters or the criteria we had to meet was this this rope yet it, it the mass had to be 350 pounds um that it had to support now that was probably the you know whatever the, the u.s air force was envisioning at the time for their their biggest loadout um you know it didn't matter but you know that was our mission we had to achieve this so you know we were kind of we kind of messed around with just a a 350 pound mask but what you know what we really needed to find out was what the operator experience would be with a 350 pound mask so you know we kirk was uh, being skyped into the test gord was standing on the tower and uh he's looking at me kirk wasn't on on video but i could somehow feel his eyes on me as well <laughs> that i was the guy that was in the breach to, to go through the operator experience. So, you know, early days were kind of rough go, but we found out a lot of things. And uh, first thing, well, the first thing that I found out is I didn't like uh, when something failed and I had another, you know, 80 pound mass hanging below me. And then Gord was catching me on the, on the blade. And you know he was quite amused when I when I when I fell. <laughs> and uh, you know what are you gonna do? You got to kind of laugh along. And then he would lower me off, and you know, well, we had to do it all over again. And what it came down to was, you know, uh, it was really cool because we'd go on camera and we'd be showing Kirk the device, and then he would be relaying information back to us, try modifying it in this way and in that way or whatever. So we'd go down to the workshop at CTOMS and we'd, you know, start dremeling and, you know, changing and configuring back up on the tower. And we started to get some success and then we didn't. So again, I ended up taking a kind of a, you know, I didn't crater, thankfully, but uh, thankfully to, uh, you know, my gratitude to the steady hand of Gord Irwin. But those were the only two incidents that occurred. Um, and after, like, where we were kind of puzzled. After that, it was all progression. And we were able to find the sweet spot. And within a very short amount of time, 
we could we had a system down where there was enough um, enough friction, but not too much. So it would hold and control a 350-pound mass and a 106-pound mass. And that was that, that was really good, like just to be a part of all these talented people involved in this project and um, being a part of kind of like the solutions to, you know, a lot of it I was just there to watch and then implement. And then, you know, the odd time I would have a something to throw into the mix. There were a lot of smart people involved in this. So, you know, at the end of it, I was the, the person that went down to do a demo um, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. By that time, I was so confident in, like my first repels on this device, I was fixated on the, uh, on the, on the loop, on the spliced eye at the end. And that, that's critical. I mean, I knew doing slow pull tests what the strength was, but you know, there's knowing the strength and then having confidence and being able to actually suspend yourself <laughs> at risk to a bit of a, a fall. And at, at the end, when I was doing that demo, like for me to personally sign off and, and you know, um, convey to another person in the military, that's a, that's a measure of trust that I, I won't breach that trust based on a, a marketing gimmick or whatever. But again, I was, I was willing and, I, and, I, and so too did I demonstrate. Uh, with my life, I hooked up to the anchor, totally committed my, myself to, um, to the system and repelled. And not only once, but, but many times. And uh, we, we, at one point when I looked at Trace, with the uh, small diameter of that rope. To me, it looked like I was repelling off a dental floss. Now, when I look at a trace rope, it looks like a fire hose <laughs> <laughs> compared to this 3.8 millimeter stuff. And I remember when I when I came out uh, to Ronin and we all repelled it, I remember the first, uh, first guy, well, it was you actually, you committed to it after I slid and then it kind of became, became this test of manhood for everybody else. And you, they, they automatically had, they automatically knew that if Mark did it and we don't, there is going to be enduring consequences to this. And standing on the platform, and I know all your guys, you guys got miles and miles of, uh, of time with rope access and exposure. There's a few deep breaths up there when, when people were kind of committing to that. Everybody did, everybody repelled. But I also remember at that time, the maximum cycles that I had done on a rope is five before I would retire it because we just, we didn't do cycle testing yet at that point. And uh, I remember uh, one guy in your crew, he was, I think what weighed in at 260, 270. My business partner, Ken, he's a former U.S. Marine. He's about 285. He was like the seventh guy to repel off him. <laughs> We're breaking new ground. Recycle the safety system. But I was just as interested to see if it was going to break as he was, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, totally funny. But, you know, we did end up doing some cycle testing. And we found it, it's still safe. Like it, it um, at five... At five cycles, we're we're still getting high sevens, uh, low eight kilonewton uh, uh, thresholds, 
at 10, we're down into like uh, low sevens, high sixes. So, you know, I, I don't think we'd ever recommend going over uh, five kilonewtons or correction, five cycles with yeah. the system. But, you know, it's, it's designed with, to be a disposable system. But, you know, I can understand why the military would see it that way. But for, for other applications, you know, paragliders, stuff like this, I mean, you know, it, you know they'll, they'll have the ability to reload it and, and kind of use it uh, a few times before we would recommend kind of retiring. Um, can you talk a little bit about the device without getting into too many specifics? Because I found it very unique to repel on. Yeah, okay. So the device, it's, it's a, uh, it, it applies friction to a rope, kind of like, well, we'll say similar to what a, a brake bar would. Um, it's auto locking. So if the operator releases it, you know, like when the Air Force put out their parameters, like I, you know, just, you know, being in the military, I understood that there's a few unknowns that they, that they, they're probably tracking, but they, you know, we, we thought we would get ahead of right off the bat. So one handed operation, you know, when, when a pilot ejects out of an aircraft, it's usually not, you know, <laughs> There's usually uh, some drama that precedes that situation. You know, some violence so, during the moment of the event, too. Yeah, totally. Like probably someone's trying to blast them out of the sky, and you know, if they're fortunate enough to be able to punch out of that aircraft, and hopefully uh, they all are, they you know they could have injury uh, post ejection caused by the ejection, if not caused by the kinetic event that is, you know, destroying your aircraft, causing the ejection. So we had to consider, you know, what's a, a poor aviator operating at their lowest ebb kind of ends up in the trees. Um, they got to be able to, you know, this should not be the system that ends in them becoming a POW. You know, we got to do everything we can to make sure that they're able to get down the ground. So it can be operated with one hand, you know, it can be anchored, rigged everything um, with, and then, you know, the amount of pressure, it's not gonna take a ton of pressure to be able to function the device, but if if they have to stop, they all they need to do is, is let go of the device. And even if they, if there's a bit of a panic, there's enough friction in the system where it is, it's not necessarily designed as a descent control device, but uh, I mean, the the ability for them to rapidly scream down the rope is kind of limited too. That was, that was kind of a side benefit that we, we didn't anticipate. So that was kind of like the, the uh, you know, what we were considering for the actual device, but then we even made, were able to make it smaller. Um, you know, we, at first we had a handle on it that was just under maybe five inches. Well, you know, we talked about, well, let's cut it in half and put a hinge on it. So we could fold it. And then, well, we talked about, well, let's use, let's look at using synthetic materials instead of, instead of aluminum. And that you will even um, decrease the weight. Well, there's an insulative properties too, because if the device is so small with such big loads, it's going to get hot. Like we did thermal imaging testing on it too, right? And, uh, and, and there was a spec capability we had to meet. And so by putting that, 
uh, molding on the handle, then it uh, just relieves the burns. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like, you know, if you, anything, especially with Technora, you know, we get that with, with trace systems as well. Like the interplay with the device when you are descending, I mean, that, that Technora is gonna generate heat uh, against the aluminum, right? So, I, I mean, uh, when we did our testing on that, we had to make sure like the US Air Force put together parameters and it's all based around pilot comfort. The Air Force is big on pilot comfort, eh? Like, I remember that from being in the service. And we talked about our, the different, well, you know, it, no offense, Chris, like I don't, like Chris was in the Air Force, but he was in was the infantry too. too. So he, he lived the difference. I didn't necessarily live First time I went to Comox and went to the mess, I was like, is this the same military? <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, at the end of the day, what we came out with was a device it was uh, a device with a, a mechanism of anchoring it and uh, with 150 feet of rope that uh, weighed less than uh, 1.5 pounds. It came in at, at, at 1.4 pounds with 150 feet of rope. So, I mean, that is, that's mind blowing. It, it, you know, from my perspective, hauling the big thick ropes uh, at 10 grand, you know, a bunch of steel carabiners and all this, all this gear to do that little smart, small part of the mission. I mean, now, like we, we are, I, I think, seriously playing in this serious game of what the future is going to look like and the ability of what people can carry that need to, you know, to, to exercise rope access. So like, you know, that, that firefly rope, is, is what the device is called. It's called the Firefly system is for in, uh, uh, a parachute lowering device. It's 10 grams per meter is what the rope weighs. Like, yeah, you gotta, you know, I'll, if I ever had to carry that stuff, I'd feel bad. I would have to pick up rocks and stuff to put in my <laughs> rucksack, tell myself, you know, I, de I deserve the, you know, the, the title of a military mountain operator or whatever. So, I mean, yeah, it's truly a light game, but it's also for a contingency. And it would have been, it would have been a kind of a disservice to kind of, you know, just focus on, on the military for its application. You know, uh, uh, Will Gad has, has kind of um, been helping us out with information. And he's a, he's an avid paraglider, Red Bull athlete. And uh, we asked him, like, what he thought of it. And he said, you know, there's a lot of improvisation going on right now in the, in the paragliding industry for that, for that stuff. And we've had in, in inquiries before to use Trace uh, for, for paragliders. Like, there was a, a paraglider who's going on an expedition down in Peru. And uh, expedition paragliding, I mean, I'm not a paraglider. I didn't, I didn't know these things existed. But when you consider what that could look like, uh, yeah, it sounds reasonable to me that they'd be looking for a tree egress system um, because if they landed in a in a in a tall growth rainforest down in Peru and they had to get themselves down, uh, you know, earlier this year, correction, uh, in 2020, unfortunately there was a fatality in in Kananaskis country, and they determined a paraglider had went, gone into the trees, and uh, he had no 
no mechanism of getting himself down except for to try to down climb. And, you know, to limit the technology just to the military and not go for these other avenues, I think would be a disservice. So, I mean, yeah, the Firefly for the civilian market, that's kind of where we're oriented uh, right now because I, I think that's the most, uh, that's where it stands to benefit people the most, I would think. Well, as I mentioned, I have a certain interest in it in the NFPA market and currently NFPA's rope size is much larger than that, but be looking at the different, you know, aspects of the device and stuff and see having chats with them, because I think that's where that needs to go as well. I'm not one to pull one piece of safety gear out to replace with another, hoping that, you know, I don't need either, but now I'm definitely not getting one. So uh, the Firefly, when are we going to see it in the public realm? Well, uh, looking at a release of Q2, like uh, sometime in the summer of 2021. Uh, it's in production right now. Uh, you know, like when you mention like using it as a potential bailout device, we, I want to tell you about some of the experiences we've had with, with edges. And uh, I was, you know, quite interested in how this, this rope would perform around edges. You know, so obviously because of uh, the purpose for which, like, you know, that we originally designed it for, I wanted to see how it would, how it would uh, perform around tree branches. And, you know, so we had a bunch of uh, samples at the, at the uh, facility, hardwood and softwood and bark and broken, you know, sharp edges and whatever. And it, it really performed well. I mean, when it's under, when it's under load, it kind of takes on, um, well, you know, Technora is, it's a very strong material anyway. When it's under load and all those fibers are under tension, it literally performs like a steel cable would. The, the actual uh, wood, all it was doing was providing edge pro, for lack of a better term, <laughs> for the rope. It was cushioning the rope. The rope was deforming the wood and, you know, there was, we had, no evidence that there was any uh, impact to the rope whatsoever when it formed around wood. But there was on one circumstance where I was really trying hard because I was disappointed. <laughs> you know, when, when I do uh, rope testing with Chris at his facility, you know, there's a few scars on the gyp rock that I've kind of had to <laughs> pile things against to try to make pretend like it didn't happen or whatever. But you know, we've had a few craters and a few bounces and stuff from the tower. And that day when I, I was looking forward to that occurring, the day I was doing the tests on the Firefly rope, and it didn't occur. And, uh, you know, so I was a little bit disappointed. So I started doing a couple of little minor jolts and drops over it. And on one, uh, I, I kind of had it uh, a piece of wood, like a, a piece of raw branch material lashed to an, a beam, a steel beam. And all it did was like uh, the, the wood exploded and, you know, it, but the rope came up against the sharp 90 degree edge on the steel beam. I'm like, okay, good. We're here now. We, uh, I'm going to break this thing. So I started to drag it across. So I had a 350 pound mass hanging below. I, I started to drag the rope across laterally 
across the sharp edge. Now it was probably vectored about 45 degrees over this 90 degree steel beam. So it wasn't necessarily at a, at a right angle. But you know, when you're looking at a 3.8 millimeter rope, you would you would logically think that, that that won't take long at all. It took me 10, 10 lateral, uh, like I really had to yard this stuff because there's 350 pounds hanging off it. And it, it took 10 attempts and it still didn't break. So then I, I kind of unloaded the mass and then I loaded it again from below. And then that's when it popped. So the next kind of uh, series of testing where we really focus on its performance over edges, we're going to be able to, de to determine what exactly the rope can do and then what the minimum requirements will be to add protection. And we've already done a little bit with a, like a Technora sleeve, which is showing some encouraging results. But yeah, I mean, that'll be the next kind of stage. Um, and that'll, that'll probably pr be pertaining to the other markets of, of rope access, like industrial, fire rescue, and uh, the other military and tactical kind of markets. Right on. Well, that's an exciting project. I mean, it was fun to see it. I know, as you say, when you hang from that and you look at it and it looks at your shoelace, it's like, wow. <laughs> so um, we've been on for almost an hour and a half and I didn't even want to take up this much of your time. I appreciate it. Is there anything else you two want to throw into the mix before we sign off? Just trying to think if there is anything. You know, uh, the, the thing with micro rope systems, uh, it just comes to mind is there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of pieced together. And we, we mentioned this earlier, just pieced together systems out there where they take, you know, odds and sods off. And there's some really good systems. There's some safe systems out there like that. The, the thing that I, I would caution everybody is that no data doesn't mean that it's safe though. Is it just because, right? Because I see this far too often is, that Sorry, I laugh because yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but you know what you know where I'm coming from yeah. is that uh, there's just there's been a lot of critique against trace systems, and I welcome it. But uh, where where it kind of uh, where it crosses that line is like, well, that's unfair. We'll say is that they say here's a critique on this. Oh, you can only use it for 25 repels, and you got to throw it in the garbage. But my system is. You know, and it's just off the shelf stuff. It's like, but it's got zero data. Oh, it's safe because it's got zero data. And so I would just caution people that, that, that when you get into micro rope systems, it's a different world and you have to use your critical thinking and you have to understand kind of what's going on. And, and cycle fatigue on those ropes is, is a real thing and that has consequences. So um, that's kind of my big take-home point on, 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 you know, a lot of this on, on dealing with these, these little systems is just keep that in mind. Yeah. Right on. I think, like with the technology, uh, the way it's evolving, like uh, it's only going to get better. But, you know, like Chris says, like, there's going to be that culmination uh, where you're not going to be able to just kind of, you know, go and buy, you know, your, say a, a black diamond rope and a, and a Petzl belay repel device or whatever, and and you know, a descender made by maybe some European organization. You know, um, 
because of the dynamics involved is it, the integration is uh, and not understanding the, the integration has has big consequences. But you know, the technology is going places where fast and light are truly going to come into um, being fast and being super light and and super safe. So yeah, I mean the future is bright because technology is, is going to continue to evolve, and uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be good for climbers, alpinists, operators, you know, fire rescue specialists, everybody. Right on. Well, thank you again for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate uh, appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks, Mark.